This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. He was like, Gina, there's this band. They're an all-girl band. You're going to get in there. We're going to kick that drummer out, and you're going to make them famous. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name, where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in that book, as well as some of the artists I love and respect from other eras. So, the Go-Go's essentially defined my musical taste for the rest of my life. Before the Go-Go's and MTV, I primarily listened to the AM radio rock that was around, stuff my parents listened to. I mean, my first ever 45 was Gary Rafferty's Baker Street. I also remember being obsessed with Strawberry Letter 23. Not sure if it was the original Shuggy Otis version or the Brothers Johnson's remake. All I remember is I heard it at the circus, and yes, the circus. Uh, It was playing over the sound system there, and I was a little obsessed. After the circus was over, I insisted we go to Kmart so I could buy the 45, which unfortunately had a scratch on it. We had to go back, return it, and get another one. Moving on... (laughs) Uh, I was just about the perfect age to begin my musical exploration when MTV launched in 1981. Our Lips Are Sealed was one of the few videos around at the time and was played pretty regularly on the channel. Again, another trip to Kmart to buy the 45. I must have been a little behind because they no longer had the 45 in stock, but they did have a new single from them. It was called We Got the Beat. I went home, put it on, and man was I sold. That insistent drum beat kicks in and it was all over for me. Today, I'm so happy that Gina Schock, the famed drummer from the Go-Go's, joins us to talk about all the pivotal moments in her life. There's a lot, so hold on and enjoy. My journey has been extraordinary, and I am definitely in grateful mode right now. I've been fortunate enough to do what I love to do, my whole adult life since I've been, well, 21. And even as a teenager, but 21 when I moved to LA, well, that was that was a stamp of like, it's now or never, boy, you got to do something here. So that was certainly a pivotal moment. But before we get into the move to Los Angeles, where she would eventually meet up with the future members of the Go-Go's, let's take it back to when Gina was 11 years old, back to where she first figured out what she was going to do with her life. The first concert that I went to was Led Zeppelin opening for The Who which I don't think that ever happened again, but uh, uh, it was in 1969 and my brother took me to the show. He was babysitting me. Um, the tickets were 350. And uh, I mean, I knew at that moment, I mean, I loved music. I, I was always about music. I mean, like I, Ed Sullivan on Sunday nights, I, I couldn't wait to see who the mu- musical guest was going to be. 
I was always into music and music was big in our family. In our household, music was always playing. Um, my parents loved big band music. They were always playing music, dancing and, you know. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> so seeing Led Zeppelin and The Who was like a magical experience. It blew my mind to see those two bands together playing, both really different than the other, but wow, did they have something to say on their instruments. And um, of course, seeing The Who bust up their, their instruments at the end of their show and all that. I was 11. I was like, I had nothing to go for. I'm seeing this stuff for the first time. And it was like, oh my God, I need to be doing this. I need to get up on that stage. I need to do that. And seeing the reaction from the audience, I thought, you know, the adoration and the, you know, every, come on, everybody wants to be accepted kind of, you know what I mean? And I was like, hey, wow, I'd like to have, you know, 10,000 people screaming to see me play. I'd like that. <laughs> so I just have to get better at what I do, find the right people, and I'm going to be up there someday. And actually, it was uh, like, I think 11 years later, I was on that very stage, Mary with the Post Pavilion, uh, playing there, where I'd first seen Zeppelin in the Hill. Massey, who starred in many of John Waters' films while she was alive, had this thrift store down in um, Fells Point called Edith's Edith Shopping Bag. And I would always go in and see her. She starred in all of his films. I would go in and visit her because she was the loveliest old lady sitting there. And you'd walk in and she'd go, oh, hi, Gina, how you doing? And it was her and her cat, Lovey, sat on the, on the, uh, on the table there. And, uh, she just sat there with the cat and her cash register and talked to everybody that came in the shop. And the shop was kind of crappy. It didn't have anything really good there. But it was just a thrill to go and see Edie because she was such a character. And she was genuine and a beautiful woman. I just adored her. So anyway, one day I walked in and she said, oh, Gina, I have a, I'm putting together a punk rock band. And we're going to go to New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I was like, you know, she was like, do you want to join? I was like, yes, of course, Edie. Of course I want to join. And so we sort of slapped the band together very quickly and got to play in Philly and then went up to New York and played at CBGB's. Uh, flew the first time I'd ever been on a plane. I was 21. Flew to LA, did three shows at the Newark, and then flew to San Francisco and did a show at, where do we do the show? Oh, for God's sakes. What's the, uh, the not the Fillmore, the other one. What the heck? I can't think of the name, but whatever the hell. It was a great place to play up to. And, you know, I made a couple friends and I was like, oh my God, this is my chance. Maybe I can come back to one of these cities and, and begin my career in earnest, in real, in like in a real pro professional way. So um, I went home and saved money and came back to New York, San Francisco, LA spent like a week and a half in each place or two weeks in each place and went back to Baltimore and decided, Hey, it's going to be LA. And I knew three people in LA. And, um, so I packed everything up and my dear friend from high school, Babs, we hopped in my dad's pickup truck with everything that I owned and everything she had. I brought my PA system, my drums, I brought guitars, I brought amps, I brought everything I had, all my vinyl, uh, and drove to LA. I knew like I say, three people and got there on Valentine's Day of 1979. Now I went, I was in LA first time in 78 because we were an Edie's band. So that's when I first was there. But, um, but 79 is when I moved there. And uh, 
thus began my career. long afterwards that the Go-Go's came into my life, the, the fellow that I was living with, a guy named Steve Martin, not the Steve Martin, but he was a filmmaker, he still is, Steve Martin, and uh, he he was like, Gina, there's this band, they're an all-girl band, you're going to get in there, we're going to kick that drummer out, and you're going to make them famous, that, that was what Steve said to me, and I was like, okay, Steve, well, while I was there, I was playing in a couple different bands, because being a girl made it easy to be able to play in bands because it was so unusual. You know, it was kind of unusual at the time for a girl to be playing drums. Anyway, I went to this party. Steve's brother, Doug, had a party. And uh, he said, oh, a couple of the Go-Go's are going to be there. So I had seen them previously do one show, and they were really not that good. But they were having a blast on stage. And the audience was having a great time with them. They were interacting in the, with the audience. Like everybody knew each other. It was, it was really cool. The scene was so cool in LA. The punk scene was just incredible. Very inclusive. Uh, you know, well, like a big pack of punks running around the city, running to each other's shows, you know, a couple, two or three shows in one night. Uh, anyway, so uh, I saw them play. They were great. But uh, at one point, uh, Doug brought uh, Jane, Belinda, and Margo over to meet me. And they were like, oh, we're looking for a drummer. And I said, oh, well, I'm looking to join a band, even though I was already in two bands. But I knew the bands that I was in right now at that point were just, you know, just taking up my time till I found some band that I really connected with. So I invited him over to the house. Steve had let me put up the PA in his living room, set my drums up in his living room. They came over on the weekend and I joined. We played a couple songs, smiles all the way around. We knew it was a great connection. And I quit my two bands on Monday, and they fired their drummer, and that was it. Rest is history. Bassist Kathy Valentine wrote a memoir of her time in the band and remembers Gina coming in wearing overalls and how the band wanted to give her a makeover. I had to ask her about that. Uh, yeah, overalls. Yeah, but, like, overalls are in, right? Um, so, anyway, I, I, you know, fashion wasn't a, really of any concern to me. I, all I cared about was music. But Jane was like a little fashion fashionista, and um, she c- cut my hair off, dyed it black, and we would go to thrift stores every weekend and pick out clothes. And then I was soon there, thereafter outfitted in my punk attire and ready to go. And uh, yeah, for me, it was always about the music, but uh, you know, fashion was secondary in my book. One of the things that came up over and over again while I was researching for this episode was Gina's famous work ethic. That work ethic really came into play in the band's formative years. After I joined the band, we started to, uh, first off, I, I like kind of insisted that we have to rehearse a lot more because I don't think the girls were that serious about it. And I had moved across the country to pursue my dream and I was dead serious about trying to make it in the business. And so they sort of got on board with that work ethic and we played, we were, we were rehearsing a lot and everybody, everybody in the band got better quickly. So I was right about, you know, knowing that they had the potential, they just hadn't tapped into it quite, quite then. And so uh, we started rehearsing more. We started um, doing a lot more shows and the shows were getting more and more crowded and we became the house band at the whiskey, which is quite an honor. And so we're the house band at the whiskey, which meant, any band that came into town, we would open for them. So that that being said, Madness came into town. 
So we wound up opening for Madness. And we got ourselves all British boyfriends. And they went back to London and told their other buddies, which were the specials, hey, you got to have this band open for you, the Go-Go's, when you play in L.A., which they did. And then they went back and told their managers. They got together and said, hey, we need to get, can we get them over here and have them open for us on, on British tours? So we did. We went back and we opened for Madness on their tour. And then the specials on their tour were there for several months. Um, we, we did some shows on our own. Um, they didn't like us that much, but we thought we were going to go over there and be huge, and we were not huge. Nobody cared about us, but it we it was the school of hard knocks. And um, we we when we finished when we by the time we got back to the states, we could tackle anything because we were used to getting bottles thrown at us every night, and people didn't like us. So we came back, and and meanwhile, you know, we're in the UK trying to make it, and our single on Stiff Records started to get some 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 airplay and we were sort of happening in a on a in a club level and they were playing us all over the clubs and getting you know airplay on independent stations and so that started taking off the go-go's were the band to see in la at the time people lined up around the block to see them despite this record labels were not in any rush to sign them all the labels in town were not interested in us because there hadn't been an all-girl band that had been you know nationally or internationally successful so uh, nobody would offer us a record deal we got offered like et deals but not not a, not an lp deal so we held out until uh we could get a, an lp deal and we did and that was with irs records irs was distributed by a and m and um miles copeland was the head of irs records and he signed us so his brother stewart played drums in the police and Miles proposed to our manager, Ginger Canzanieri, wouldn't you think the girls would like to go on tour with the police? She brought that invitation to us, and we said, absolutely, we want to tour with the police. And so we went from traveling in a 12-seater van to an, a real tour bus and opening in 20,000-seaters, you know, going from a club to 20,000-seaters. And that... I mean, people were going to see both bands. You know, it was a great bill, the two of us together. Then uh, we got offered to be on um, Saturday Night Live. And after that, like a week later, the album went platinum and it just, just exploded. And that's how that happened. <laughs> that album was 1981's Beauty and the Beat, the first album ever to go number one by an all-female band. Two more hit records followed, Vacation and Talk Show, and the pressures of fame caught up with the band. The Go-Go's broke up uh, in 1985, and then we got back together in 1990 and really have been together ever since. I feel like that was a, a poor decision on, every, on different, uh, that was a poor decision on, on the band's behalf, but there was a lot going on, a lot of money, a lot of drugs, and poor decision making, and nobody guiding us. We should have taken off for a year or five years and got back together and just continued. You know what I mean? There was no reason to break up, but we we did we didn't have anybody you know steering the ship. And boy, did we go off course. Then in 1990, actually, the person that got us back together was Jane Fonda. Um, she was doing a show at Universal Amphitheater in L.A. and she was trying to get different you know bands to come and play to raise money for this green initiative to get on the ballot. And um, we we got a call and we all started talking, you know, 
so we're like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do this show. So we did, we, we did that show. And then they started booking more shows and then we were back together. Everything was, you know, it's a family. It's like we fight and fight, and, but we make up just as easily, you know? It's tough. It's tough being. It's tough being in the same family, being married to four other girls for over forty years. It's not easy. Let me tell you, being married to one person for forty years is practically impossible. But four other girls, woo, it's tough. In twenty twenty one, Drew Barrymore inducted the band into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was about time, and for years, it seemed like that was something that would never happen. Oh, we're going to get inducted this year. We're going to get and and it wasn't happening. And so finally, by the time it happened, we were over it. But I got to say, when we were there, being there, everybody was thrilled. When it actually happens to you, you can't help but be thrilled and excited to be part of that very cool club, okay? Um, <laughs> it's sort of like getting your Lifetime Achievement Award, you know? That's, that's what I would compare it to. That's how it felt to me, how it feels to me. You know, not everybody's got that. Their, that little that little statuette, that little trophy sitting in their uh, wherever, in their house somewhere, in their possession. Um, and so uh, it, was, it was really thrilling. And I'm really happy that I had that, that we won. I think also um, the fact that, you know, we did a documentary called, uh, it was, we did a documentary in 2021 as well. And I think that helped create an awareness of the Go-Go's. It was on Showtime, and it was a great and the documentary. was fantastic. Uh, a documentarian named Allison Elwood did it, and she's won several awards. Um, our film, our documentary, was won the Critics' Choice Award at Sundance. So that was kind of thrilling. And then, then we got nominated, and then we got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it was like boom, boom, boom. Woo! This is really cool. <laughs> That documentary is, in my opinion, one of the best rock music documentaries out there. And I wanted to know about how that came together. I mean, yeah, we wanted to find somebody that we felt got us, that got the band and got our kind of humor and, you know, somebody we felt like we could talk to and feel, you know, open up to. And um, that was, that took us quite a while because a lot of folks had come to us with offers of documentaries, doing a documentary, offers of doing a, a, a feature film all that sort of stuff. And I don't think there, there wasn't anyone that we really connected with. And so it was just sort of pass, pass, pass. And then this came up with Allison. And um, I, I have to say that I, I definitely spearheaded that project because I, I really believed that she would do a good job. And I sort of, I felt like I kind of had to talk to other girls into it. And I know our manager art at the time really wanted it to happen. And so did I. So little by little, everybody started giving in and, then when we met her, we were like, yeah, we're going to do this. This is the right person. You know, because we had spoken to, each, we'd spoken to her over the phone. But then we met her in New York, and, and we thought, she's going to do a good job. So, does the future hold more recording or touring for the band? I, I can't say no, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, I, I certainly always hope that we record. I always hope that we go out and play because I love the band. And I, like I said, I'm really grateful. The Go-Go's have afforded me an incredible life. And people love the band and always want to hear our music. Wherever I go, they always ask about the Go-Go's. And it makes sense because that's how, how, I, how I, how Gina Shock got on the map from the Go-Go's. You know, I didn't just appear one day and had, you know, tens of thousands of fans. The Go-Go's made that possible. and so. Uh, you know, hopefully 
you know, Belinda and, and Jane and Charlotte, I know Kathy would do shows. I don't know about the other three, but, you know, I'd, I'd hope that, that they would like wake up and, you know, and do it for the fans, if not for each other. Yeah. But once we got on that stage together, it would be magic because it always is. You, you know, whatever happens when we start playing together, there is this, this energy, this magic that happens that cannot be repeated playing with anybody else. And I know everybody in the band would say that. The band has been on hiatus at different times. And, you know, um, so whenever that happens, everybody always goes off and does their own thing. And so what I, I had, you know, seven, six or seven years where I stopped my songwriting to take care of my parents who were both had started getting sick with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so I, I, you know, you know, the go-go since 1990, we would play, we'd take off a year or something and we'd play and take, and then play for, you know, it was on and off playing, which is what we've done since 1990. Um, and finally I, uh, found the right people to write with. And I got a, I got song, a song cover. Miley Cyrus did a song that I co-wrote and Selena Gomez did four songs that I co-wrote. So I was starting to get hot with my songwriting. This was in, uh, like 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. I think where where we started to get started to get hot with songwriters with our our credits as songwriters, and then mom and dad started getting sick, and uh, I could see it coming. It was a slow it was slow, and uh, but they started to every time I'd go home to Baltimore, I'd see that they weren't able to do as much as they were the time previous. You know, it was just getting very obvious that they were they were going to need help. So I moved them to. Uh, sort of just stopped my songwriting thing and moved them to San Francisco and they stayed with me till they both passed. Yeah. My dad, uh, mom died in 2019, dad died in 2021. And so, you know, I'm just was in the last year able to sort of pick myself up and start applying myself to the stuff that I really love doing. And that's my music and my art, my, uh, and writing a book and doing my photography and my art exhibits and all that. So I'm back in, into doing, doing, uh, being creative in a, in a, uh, in a way that I think can maybe help me heal the loss of my parents. I don't know. It's tough. Grief is a really strange thing. Besides her fabulous book of photography about her time in the Go-Go's, Made in Hollywood, which you can get wherever you buy your books, Dina's been working with her second band, House of Shock, and they just released a new song called Smile Pretty. Expect more from them next year. In addition, Gina's got a show of her photo art at Mr. Music Head on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, opening on October 26. You can check out some of her art at ginashockart.com. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you to Gina Schock for taking the time to go through some of the many pivotal moments in her life as a go-go. And a quick reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, on 90s Artists, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please leave a review where you're listening. It always helps others find us. And of course, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thank you for listening. 
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.